What a blessing. What a privilege it is to be here. I remember it like yesterday. It was 2006, and I'm walking down the streets of Kampala, Uganda, a country right next to Rwanda, working there with Africa Renewal Ministries, which is a, another fantastic partner of Wayside and the sister ministry of Africa New Life Ministries. And I'm walking down this street, and on one side is a class, it's a school of sponsored children from Africa Renewal in nice clothes, well-fed, engaged in the lesson, smiles on their faces, hope in the future. And on the other side, it was street kids, torn clothing, emaciated, without hope. And that, that picture, that, that, that I took a mental image that day, and it's left an indelible mark in me. And, it, and I, I promised myself that I would never forget what I saw that day, and that I would spend my days fighting for child ministry, and that would be a part of a church that would do the same thing. And so I'm just so thankful to be here at Wayside. And I'm so thankful this morning and I'm excited for you guys because you're going to get to hear from my friend and one of the most special individuals I have ever met. And we're going to spend some time talking to him right now. So would you give a hand for John Bosco as he comes up. Now, John, you were born right around the time of the, the massive genocide in the nation of Rwanda. So tell me what it was like growing up at that time and what life was like before you were a sponsored child with African New Life. Thank you and good morning. Um, before I got sponsored, growing up, uh, I grew up in a family of 13 kids. And these kids, six of them were orphans of the 1994 genocide. We were all still young. So my dad had lost his parents and his brothers and sisters. So he had to bring kids in our family. And he was trying to help us. But in the middle of that, our mom fell sick and she died. And that was so devastating to us because at this time we were in the position of not getting food, not going to school, we all dropped out. And uh, I was older son in the family, and I had to take responsibility of making money and feeding my family and also feed myself. It was really hard. We only had one meal a day, and sometimes we didn't have food. I had to work really hard all day in the morning. I was nine years old. And I used to fetch water and sell it to the community. And, and I used to make 75 cents every day. And we would eat one meal from that and live with that. Uh, but as I kept doing that, complaining, I couldn't sleep, my back pain, I, was, I would see kids going to school. All these kids going to school and I would complain about, why is this happening to me, not to these kids? But as we complain, even though we don't know Jesus, he knows us. He always answers our prayers and our complaints. And so, John, before even you got sponsored, something significant happened in your life when you had a friend share the gospel with you. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. So uh, this was the time when I was at the point of giving up on life because I had no hope. But I met one kid who was sponsored through African New Life, and I was doing these jobs, but he talked to me and told me about Jesus and, <clears throat> and told me to trust in him and pray. And 
he gave me a Bible. His name is John, too. His name is Nairo John. He was older and was sponsored through African New Life. But I couldn't get it at this moment. But as soon as I said yes to Jesus, and he led me to Christ, gave me a Bible, after two weeks, I got sponsored by somebody from America. And praying through that, God started showing me that he cares about me. And getting sponsored was like the special day in my life. Because this is the day that I started thinking differently and um, started having dreams of the future. So this is incredible to, re- to recapture. So John moves to where African New Life Ministries is to take a job there. He meets with one of the original nine sponsored kids at African New Life, another kid named John, who shares the gospel with him. He comes to faith. And then a team from America comes, and there's a woman from Washington who meets John and says, this kid needs to be sponsored. And so she sponsors him two weeks after he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Tremendous, tremendous deal for you. And so tell me a little bit about life after being sponsored there in Rwanda. So as I said, after being sponsored, everything changed. This time I'm thinking differently. I went to the school called New Life Christian Academy. It's African New Life School. It's one of the best in the nation. And um, I wanted to go to that school, but at that moment, I wasn't good enough. I went there and they gave me a test and I couldn't perform to their level. So they were like, oh, your English is weak. We can't have you here unless we put you to grade two. And that moment I talked to the principal and told him, I'm going to look like a man in this class. <laughs> and yeah, um, so I said, no, I cannot be in grade two. I was 14 years at the time. So then I asked him, to advise me what to do. So he said, you can take time, go learn English, and come back. If you know English, we will put you in a grade you want. So it was a challenge to me, but because of the dream that sponsorship had given me, I didn't give up. I went out there, spent two years learning English by myself. I had no teachers, but I did that. And when I came back, I was speaking English after two years, and they gave me a place in the school. Not bad, huh? So you spend two years, John, teaching yourself English. You go back to this top-flight school there in Rwanda, and tell me what happens then. So when I went there, um, I wasn't good as the standards of the students. Still, I went there for the first term. I didn't do well, and I was just... Like, I was like, I cannot accept this. So I work really hard there at night. Then the next time, I am the best in the school. So I am the, at the top of the others. And then the school really liked me. They made me uh, the school president at this moment. And then I, the school principal asked me to help others learn and be a leader. So I led this school to be the number one, the number one school in the nation. And it was one of the best students the nation, and this changed the view of the people in the country. They thought we were poor kids who just went to school and couldn't perform well. But when we were the number one school in the national exams, everything changed, and the communities changed. So um, now our school is a special school. It's a school for poor kids, but it's the number one school in the nation. Just, just to recapture that, he doesn't know English. 
He goes and teaches himself in two years, comes back to the school, becomes the top-ranked student in the school and one of the top three in the entire country of Rwanda. They say, hey, John, can you help out our other students? He organizes study groups, pours into his classmates, and these sponsored kids from an impoverished area of Rwanda become the number one school in the entire country, and the government goes to Africa New Life and says, tell me what you're doing. Come help out these other schools. You can preach the gospel. Just we want to see kids achieve like those kids are achieving. Praise God for that. Just... And now John is spending a year in Portland uh, fine-tuning his English because next fall you will be attending classes at Wheaton College in Chicago. And John, why don't you tell the people here a little bit about what you hope to do with your education in Wheaton as you head back to Rwanda. Um, I've been blessed so much to be able to be going to that school and on a full scholarship. So it's a big blessing to me. And um, in my life, what I plan to do is to give back to my community. So when I finish school, I want to go back and start my own business and be able to give people jobs. And then these people will be paid decent money to help their families and send their kids to school and teach them about God and teach them about how to live better. Yeah. And not only, not only does he want to be a business, a business owner, you already are a business owner. Because he, he, he taught English to students or to people in your community. And with that money, he bought two piglets that now are... I have a hundred of them now. That's a good return. I'll, I'll work with that. Um, well, we're about out of time here, John. But I want you to just share with the people here, if you could share one thing just with them about your life or about the power of child sponsorship, African New Life Ministries, what would you say to the people here? Uh, what I would say is that sponsorship changes life. Um, not just about school, but what African New Life does. As soon as the kid gets sponsored, they provide them everything they need to live a successful life. The gospel, uh, they have the mentors, people who come and speak to them and lead them to Christ. And also, they give them food. These kids sometimes are starving. But as soon as they get sponsored, the kids get to go to the school, eat food, nice food, and then they can focus more. So, in other words, they give you a chance to dream about the future. The reason why I'm standing here today and doing everything that I'm doing, it's because African New Life was like my parent at that moment. So they helped me not to worry about everything that was going on in my family. And then I was able to focus on my future. And now I'm still doing that. Thank you. Well, would you give John a hand? Good job, man. Well, our, our sermon this morning is going to be a little bit shorter than normal because of the fact we wanted to make sure that you guys got to hear from John. And I think after hearing from him, that was well worth it. Amen? Amen. Um, speaking of John, he's going to be out in the foyer after the service along with uh, Eric, the other representative from African New Life Ministries. And they would love to chat with you. He would love to meet you, answer any questions you have about the ministry. While you're out there, you'll also, as Rick said, see pictures. They've got computers set up. If the Lord moves in your heart to sponsor one of these kids, um, 
My prayer is that we would just come alongside and if the Lord does that, we would be faithful and that next week there would be just dozens upon dozens upon dozens upon dozens of kids who have no hope for the future be told that they're going to be part of the African New Life Ministry because a church halfway around the world loved them before they knew them because that's just what Christians do. And so that's my prayer this morning and I hope that the Lord moves in a mighty way. Well, when I learned that we would be pre- I'd be preaching this Sunday and that it was going to coincide with African New Life, I began kind of racking my brain and praying, what would the Lord have me share? And after kind of a much deliberation, I landed on a passage that has just become a, a dear passage of, to me, and that is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. So I invite you to turn there right now to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And as you turn there, I want to ask you two simple questions. Simple yet essential. And they're right there on the cover of your bulletin as well. And the questions are this. Who are you and why are you here? Who are you and why are you here? And I'm not talking about why are you here at Wayside. I'm talking about why are you here on this earth in general. You know, when they interviewed me for the job here, it's kind of interesting because the first two questions that I actually heard on my first day of work at Wayside were these very two questions. Who are you and why are you here? Now, there's a story behind this, okay? The, the search committee and the pastoral team, when they hired me in the summer of 2012, they were super welcoming and encouraging and helping me feel a part of the team. But they forgot to do one essential task, and that was to show me where I actually worked. They never gave me a tour of the facility. You might not know that my office is up here. You might not know that there are offices up here. If you did know that, you were further along than I was on my first day of work. So the night before my first day of work, I literally am in bed. I look over at Victoria. I get this panicked look to my face. And I say, hey, sweetie, I don't even know where I'm going tomorrow. I don't know where I'm supposed to go to work. And she's like, no big deal. Don't worry about it. But you know that nervous energy you get before your first day of work. So I can't, I don't sleep very well. I get up really early. There's no point in going back to bed. So I say, well, I'm just going to go to church. Maybe got here a little bit early. Okay. Totally dark. Nobody's in the parking lot. So I sit in the middle of the parking lot by myself in my car in the dark going, nice career choice, Loudermilk. Well, well played. But, but slowly, cars start coming up, and out of those cars, these women get out for a prayer meeting. And one by one, they get out, they kind of look at my car, and they move on. Until finally, this one lady comes up to me. Turns out she was a wife of one of the pastoral team members. And she comes up to me with this really kind of concerned look in her face, because this looks kind of sketchy, Okay. And I see her coming, and I get out, and I go to greet her, and she says, yes, um, sir, uh, who are you, and why are you here? And I replied, well, my name is Michael Loudermilk. I think that I work here, but I have no idea where to go or what to do. And thus began my time at Wayside, alone, without any friends or a clue. Three and a half years later, the same boat. Just kidding. (laughs) Who are you and why are you here? Two of the most fundamental questions of life. And yet, how many of us would respond like I did in the parking lot? With confusion and uncertainty. 
And knowing who you are and why you are here is essential if you want to live a life of purpose and meaning and passion and consistency. And that's why I want to take a few minutes this morning and talk about these things. Now before we get to the actual text in 1 Peter, let me give you a one minute overview of the letter. This is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to believers who have been persecuted and have been scattered in what is modern day Turkey. Okay? And if you look at the beginning of the letter, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered across Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Okay, so these are Christians who are being persecuted, have had to flee, and they are in need of encouragement, and they are in need of some instruction, and Peter is going to give them just that. And before we come to our actual text of verses 9 and 10, he's just gotten done explaining to these people what's going to happen to those individuals who reject Jesus Christ. He's told them about the judgment to come for those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And he says, they, they wait for the doom for which they were appointed. They are going to experience judgment. And then he turns his attention to these folks, the believers that he's writing to. And he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that you might proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He says, For you were not a people of God, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And right there in those two verses, verse 9 and 10, Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to answer our two questions of who we are and why we are here. And as you think about those questions, the first one deals with identity. Who are you? That's, that's an identity question. And the second question, why are you here? That is a purpose question. That is speaking to your purpose. And so as we look at verse 9, I want you to notice a few things. I'm going to point a few things out pertaining to these two questions. First off, I want you to notice that Peter describes the identity of these believers before he moves to their purpose or their practice. He says, you are this so that you might do this. In other words, Peter tells us that it is our identity that leads to our purpose. It is our position in Christ that guides and determines our practice of living for Christ. And this is extremely important. Peter does not tell these Christians what to do until he reminds them of who they are. He doesn't tell them what to do until he reminds them of who they are. He doesn't tell them to proclaim the excellencies of God until he reminds them that they are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. Because it is their identity that not only allows the proclamations, but motivates them. Their identity both allows their proclamations of His excellencies and motivates them. And in my opinion, this is why there's so much in Scripture dealing with the issue of identity. God wants us to know who we are. Because when I know who I am, I can be what I was created to be. I can can be what I was created to be when I understand and embrace who I am. 
I must know who I am in Christ so that I can authentically live my life for Christ. And this idea of position leading to practice or identity feeding our purpose is not new and it's not focused just on Peter. Paul says something similar in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. He says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on compassion, put on kindness, put on humility, put on gentleness. Who are they? They are chosen, holy, beloved. Therefore, put on compassion. Put on kindness. Put on patience. We see something similar in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes, Therefore I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Identity, prisoner of the Lord. Identity, called. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So my number, so number one point is my position in Christ, which is my identity, leads to my practice of living for Christ, which is my purpose. It's not the other way around. It's identity that leads to purpose. The second thing worth noticing here in the beginning of verse 9, which I'm sure you picked up on, is the language Paul uses to describe these believers. It's powerful language. And I want you to think about this within the context of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is a verse you probably know well, where Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, or new creation. The old has gone. Behold, new things have come. The new individual creation Paul describes in 2 Corinthians is what Peter describes corporately. Corporately. Those individuals who have become new, new creations because of their faith in Jesus Christ are now corporately described as people who are of a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for God's possession. And this is significant and powerful. Peter takes Old Testament language that God used to describe Israel and he applies it to these believers, not saying that they have replaced Israel. Not saying that God is done with Israel, but saying that they too are the people of God. They are the people of God. Because of God's work on their behalf, they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And that text applies to us as believers in Christ as well. So if you sit in these pews this morning and you have come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Peter says this is who you are and this is who you are because of what God has done. Because of what God has done, you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now you might be there sitting and you're saying, Michael, that sounds really good from the pulpit. I mean, that'll preach, brother. But let's be honest here. Let's, let's, let's shoot straight. I do not feel like a royal priest, and I do not deserve to be chosen. And you know what I say to that? Of course you don't. Of course you don't, and neither do I. None of us deserve to be the people of God's own possession. None of us deserve to be a chosen race. There's no application to fill out for the royal priesthood. Those things are given to us by the grace of God. By His unmerited favor. Think of Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift 
of God. It is a gift. You see, we are a people for God's own possession, not because of our grit, but because of his grace. We are a royal priesthood, not because of our individual merit, but because of his unending mercy. His unending mercy. We do not earn God's love or favor. We receive it. And then we learn to walk in it. Then we learn to walk in it. We learn to walk and to live and to function from our identity, knowing that our identity has been secured by the one who created us. Now, the clearest picture I have of this in my life is my relationship with my two boys. I've got two sons, Elijah and Luke. My son Elijah is four years old. My son Luke is two years old. And I know not everyone in here is a father, and I know not everyone in here is a parent. But I have learned so much about the heart of God from being a dad. And Elijah, my four-year-old, he's got a little bit of spunk, all right? He's got a little bit of juice. And those of you who have had him in the children's ministry, you know, all right? And so because of that, he sometimes pushes the boundaries a little bit, okay? And so his mother and I have to rein him in, and we've got to do a little discipline. And every once in a while when we're disciplining Elijah, he will look up at me and he will say, Dad, do you still love me? Do you still love me? It's as if he is saying, Dad, do you still want to be my dad? Am I still allowed to be your son? And after I discipline him, because I'm not going to let him out of that, I sit down with Elijah and I look him in the eye and I say, Son, I love you. You are my son and I am your father. And I will always be your dad. You see, son, that was decided the day you were born. You're mine. You're my boy. Now, do I want you to act right, Elijah? Of course I do. Do I, uh, do I get upset when you disobey? Of course I do. Because I love you. But even when you don't obey, son, and even when you fall short of daddy's standards, I want you to know that none of that changes who you are. You are my son, and I am your dad. So we have a, we have a deal now where before they go to bed, I'll lean over their beds, I'll lean over Elijah's, and I'll say, hey man, son, I love being your dad. And he'll look at me and he'll say, dad, I love being your son. And then I go to Luke, who's my two-year-old, who kind of just repeats everything. And I say, son, I love being your dad. And he goes, son, I love being your dad. And I love it. It's fantastic. Folks, do you know that God loves you? I mean, loves you. Do you know that he loves being your dad? Loves being your father. Do you know that once you are adopted into the family by faith, once you are born of the Spirit, born of God, as John 3 talks about, did you know that your identity is secured, your fate is sealed, and that you are His? You're His. There may be days when you don't feel like a royal priest. And there may be days where you're, you're not living like it. You're not living like it. And that matters. But that doesn't change who you are. Because our identity is not determined by what we do. It's determined by what God did to us and for us. 
He made you chosen. He made you holy. He made you a royal priest. He purchased you for his possession. That's the cross, and that's our God. So number one, so our job is to function from our position. Our job is to live out our true identity. So number one, our identity gives us purpose. And number two, for those who know Jesus Lord, our identity is that of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And that's just the first half of verse 9. In the second half of verse 9, Peter's going to answer the other question. Why are we here? And this is what he writes. So that, purpose statement, this is who you are, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of He who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. I have the privilege uh, on Wayside staff to work with our college and singles. They kind of sit over there. You should go meet them sometime. They're fantastic. And one of the things I tell them is I say, hey, you were saved by someone for something. You were saved by someone for something. You are not saved because of something you have done, but you are most definitely saved for something that God is preparing you to do. You are not saved because of what you have done, but you are saved in preparation for something you are to do. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Go to verse 10. For we are His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. There is a purpose to your salvation that is beyond just the forgiveness of sins. There is a purpose to your salvation that goes beyond just missing out on hell. There is a purpose to your salvation that is beyond just living a sedated, comfortable life in a heaven waiting room. There is a present purpose to your salvation, and that is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the purpose of the priesthood is for proclamation here. The purpose of your priesthood is for proclamation. We are to proclaim with our lips and with our lives the excellencies of the one who calls out of darkness to light. The one who calls out of death into life. The one who called us out of sin into holiness. The purpose of our priesthood is for proclamation. So what does that look like? What does it look like to proclaim the excellencies of God? Well, I heard a story recently. I was listening to a sermon. And this guy told a story that I think speaks so clearly to this point. And it's it's a story about a guy named Doug Nichols, who was a missionary in the 1960s in India. And, he, and he, came, he, he came down with tuberculosis. And so they put him in a, um, what are those things called? Sanitarium. Thank you. They put him in the sanitarium along with a, a number of other Indians who were recovering from this. And this guy was an evangelist. And while he was there, he's passing out gospel tracts. He's trying to give out the gospel of John. And they don't want it. They just don't want it from him. He's just a rich American. He don't know me. I have nothing to do with this guy. And they wouldn't take it. And so at the height of this guy's sickness, when he's in India, he would wake up in the middle of the night around 2 a.m. just coughing, coughing, and he he looked over and he saw this old guy trying to get up out of bed. And he couldn't get up. And he just fell back into bed. And they woke, woke up the next morning and the stench in the sanatorium filled up the entire place and it was coming from that old guy's bed. 
And everybody was angry at him and hurling insults at him. And even the nurse who cleaned him up slapped him because of what he had done. So the next night, this, this missionary is once again, he wakes up coughing. It's 2 a.m. Once again, he looks over and he sees that old man trying to get up. And this guy is giving it everything that his body can muster to get up. And he can't do it. And he falls back in bed and he begins to weep. And this guy with tuberculosis, this American guy, gets up out of his bed. And he walks over towards the old man. And the old man leans back because he's afraid he's going to hit him. But instead of hitting him with his hands, he bends down and he picks him up. And he carries this broken old man to the restroom. And he cleans him up. And he takes him back to his bed and he lays him down. And the old man grabs him and he kisses him on the cheek. Kisses him. And this missionary named Doug Nichols goes and he lays down in bed, and he goes to sleep. A couple hours later, guys, hey, hey, 4 a.m., guy wakes up Doug, and he starts pointing at the gospel tract. He says, I want one. I want one. Later that day, the rest of the day, person after person after person comes up to Doug and says, hey, give me one of those. Give me one of those. I want to know about what it is you're trying to give out. And the pastor finishes the story with these words. He says, when we act out the excellencies of God, people will hear them with even greater eagerness. For God made us who we are to show the world who he is. How powerful is that? When we act out the excellencies of God, people will hear them with even greater eagerness. For God made us who we are to show the world who he is. You see, you don't need to preach from a pulpit to proclaim the excellencies of God. You get to do it with your lips and with your life. We have an identity as a royal priest because of what God did to us. And we have a purpose as those who display the greatness of God that reveals who God is by what he does through us. Our purpose, what God does to us. I mean, excuse me, our identity, what God does to us. And our purpose is how God lives through us. Well, Peter finishes this section in verse 10. And I'm going to just read this verse and finish with a personal story. But in verse 10, Peter says, once again, one of the results of this adoption into the family of God. He says, for you were once not a people, now you are the people of God. For you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I mentioned earlier that in 2006, I got to go to the nation of Uganda. Um, what I didn't tell you was how emotionally broken I was when I went there. I just had something kind of traumatic in my life happen not long before I was supposed to go to Africa. And so I arrived in that country completely broken. I was hurt. I was angry. I was bitter. I lacked forgiveness. I was in a really bad place. But that lasted less than a week. Because that first week there in Africa, I met this young gal right here. Her name is Barbara Nanguna. Barbara Nanguna. And she changed my life. I kept a picture of her on my desk when I was coaching. I see one of my fellow coaches out here, and he can attest to it. I had this picture of Barbara. 
Because she taught me how to feel again. She helped heal my heart. God used her as a tangible representation of his great love and his great mercy. And she changed my life. And I thought of her this week as I was preparing this message. Because when I left Uganda, I said, Barbara, I am going to sponsor you until I die. You are my girl. You're my African daughter. And you're going to go to school. That was nine years ago. She's a teenager now. She's driving. I'm just kidding. I don't know if she's driving. But but she's my African daughter. But she has blessed me far beyond any of my blessings towards her. God has used her in a mighty way in my life. Secondly, I thought of Barbara this week just because as I was reflecting on the mercy of God, I thought of her. Because our God is just so merciful. He's just so merciful. And we are truly here this morning because of the mercy of God. A mercy that was personified in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we are here this morning because of the grace of God. As Titus 2 says, a grace that appeared bringing salvation to all men. Christ Jesus our Lord who walked this earth. God in the flesh who lived a perfect life. And willingly went to the cross to die for my sins and to die for yours. So that he could make us a chosen race. And a royal priesthood and a holy people. The greatest act of love. Do you believe in that? Do you believe in this Christ that I speak of? Because this is where life is found and this is our hope. This is our joy. This is everything. We are here by the mercy of God. We are here by the grace of God. And we come here this morning with an identity and with a purpose. We're not searching. We're not confused. We're not looking under rocks or stones or self-help books. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession because of what he did for us. And we have a purpose. I don't need to search it on Google. I know that my purpose is to proclaim the greatness of the God that saves. And that people would see it with my lips, hear it with my lips, and see it with my life. And that they would know of the greatness of our God. So my prayer this morning as we close is that who we, is that who we are and why we are here I pray that we would strive as individuals and we, Wayside would strive as a church to live in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called. And that we would do it to the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you this morning and we just praise you. And as I think about Sunday morning, I love Sunday morning. And I think it's because you just gather God's people here. And what we do is it's a celebration. We celebrate the fact that we have gone from darkness to light, from death to life. We celebrate the transformation that you have done in and through our lives. We celebrate God's great victories. And guys like John, who we got to hear from this morning, and that people around the world are worshiping you and being moved and changed by you. God, I pray if there's anyone in here who doesn't know who they are, that they would know that there is a God in heaven who loves them, who proved it by putting on flesh and by dying for our sins. And God, I pray that they would come to know 
you as Lord and Savior and become a part of the family of God. Become who they were created to be. God, I thank you for this church and how it's tried to be faithful for 50 plus years to carry out this call. I thank you for the men and women doing ministry around the world, the men and women proclaiming your good news around the world. There are John Boscos everywhere. And we praise you because your gospel goes forth. So thank you for this morning, God. Thank you for this people and this place. But most of all, we thank you for you and we thank you for the blood of Christ that changed everything. And we pray this in your mighty name. Amen.